0: Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfeld and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Welcome everyone. I have the privilege of being here with my colleague and teacher and my boss. Just put that out there for everyone. Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer kasoy the director of the Pardes Year Program, has joined us. Hi, Mish.
1: Hi, it's me, director of the summer program.
0: I am. I'm a director, too, now. It's very exciting. We are now on Parshat Kitavo. We're still in the midst of one of Moshe's great speeches to the Jewish people, and he's instructing them now. There's a lot of mitzvot. We're going to get a lot of commandments. And since I prepared beforehand, I know there's a particular commandment here in this parsha that caught your attention got your energy. So tell us what you want to focus on today.
1: It's Vidui Bikorim. Vidui bikorim. Do you remember that Shabbaton, it was like five years ago we played the game with the six word memoir? I think I do. We were broken up into pairs and we had to interview each other and then we had to summarize the partner's life story in six words. And this week it's like the four sentence memoir.
0: So Mish, uh, help us out. For those of us who are not familiar, What is Bikurim and what is going on here? What's described here?
1: Oh my gosh, thank you for asking that question because Bikurim is the first fruits. And did I mention to you that I'm a total sap? I'm a sap in general, but I'm a third generation gardener. That means my mother loved to garden and my grandmother loved to garden and I love to garden. And you take your first fruits, the things that you grow yourself, and you put them in a basket with a huge amount of pomp and circumstance and you bring them to the temple And then you tell a story and that story is not a six word memoir. It's a four-sentence memoir, and I'm really inspired, actually. Can I share it with you?
0: Yes. Tell us about this text. You say,
1: my father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with small numbers and sojourned there, and there he became a great and very populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to Hashem, the God of our ancestors, and Hashem heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, our oppression and Hashem freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by awesome power, by signs and portents, bringing us to this place and giving us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore, I now bring you the first fruits of the soil which you, Hashem, have given me.
0: Okay. So first two things. That was the best dramatic moment that this podcast has ever had. All of you should make note of that. And second, I'm not wrong that we would recognize these verses from the Passover Haggadah. That's right. So just understand, a person, they take take their first fruits that they have grown in the land of Israel. And no matter where they live, it could be a long walk schlepping some That's of that right. fruit.
1: They might turn their grapes into raisins. They might turn their figs into wow. fig
0: newtons. But instead of popping those fruits into their mouth, which is what I would want to do, they are going to take these fruits and bring them to the temple. But then what you're describing is once they've done that, that action, it's not over. They have to now tell this personal or national history or story.
1: That's right. And this is the story, of course, is essential. And Rabbi Sachs had something that really inspires me. I want to share as I'm thinking about what he calls it, an identity narrative. Now I'm going to read a little passage. Howard Gardner, professor of education and psychology at Harvard University, is one of the great minds of our time. He is best known for his theory of multiple intelligences, the idea that there's not one thing that can be measured and defined as intelligence, but many different things, one dimension of the dignity of difference. He has also written many books on leadership and creativity, including one in particular, which is called Leading Minds. Gardner's argument is that what makes a leader is the ability to tell a particular kind of story, one that explains ourselves to ourselves and gives power and resonance to a collective vision. So Churchill told the story of Britain's indomitable courage in the fight for freedom. Gandhi spoke about the dignity of India and nonviolent protest. Margaret Thatcher talked about the importance of the individual against an ever-encroaching state. Martin Luther King told of how a great nation is colorblind. Stories give the group a shared identity and a sense of purpose. Philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre has also emphasized the importance of narrative to the moral life. Man, he writes, is in his actions and practice as well as in his fictions, essentially a storytelling animal. It is through narrative that we begin to learn who we are and how we are called on to behave. Deprive children of stories and you have them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. To know who we are is in part to understand which story or stories we are a part.
0: Wow, very beautiful. So I'm gonna have to ask you the obvious follow-up question. What is this story meant to teach us about ourselves?
1: That's right. The first thing is it's a collective narrative. The Kuzari says, and I learned this from you, actually, I love to cite it, (laughs) that the relationship of the individual to the community is like a limb to the rest of the body. Should the arm, if bloodletting is required, refuse its blood, the whole body would suffer, including the arm. It's the duty of the individual to suffer hardships, even death, for the well-being of the nation. That's the Kuzari. But the idea is true also in the inverse. It's like the victory... Of my lemon tree or my grapevine is not my victory. It's the victory of the entire collective. My successes are something much bigger than mine. My failures are part of a much bigger trajectory. It's not about me. It's about the dream, the promise that was made to Avram Avinu, and the way that Yaakov had to put it aside, and then the Jews held on to it for those thousands of years, and they came back, and here we are making that dream come true. And my grapes are not just about grapes.
0: Well, let's come to that a little bit. So number one, it's not my story. It's our story, which of course I have to ask you as someone who also values individualism and choice, how you make your own piece with that, but we'll get there. You don't have to panic about that one yet, but one piece is it's our story. And what would you say, in addition to the importance of being part of a collective, and a collective that you made very clear, is not just the current collective. It's the past collective, the future, Jewish people past, Jewish people future, Jewish people present. What are we saying? What are we meant to understand? What are the Jewish people about that we see from the story that I tell?
1: First, we see humble beginnings, right? It's like we started off being at a small group of people, and we were oppressed. And we also noticed that the story, which is our story and not my story is actually not even our story. It's actually about God. The central character, even Moshe doesn't make it in there. The main trajectory of the story is actually about how God made it all happen for us. And that manifests itself in the Mishnah. We have to let go. Of course, there's all the Mishnah in the third parak of the Mishnah. It's so beautiful talks about how all of Yerushalayim, everyone would come out to greet the people from wherever they were coming and welcome them and celebrate them. And you would have a flute that was playing before them until they got to the Temple Mount. And then they got to the Temple Mount, and even Agrippus the king, of course, the Agrippus has a whole entourage, you know. You I would imagine, imagine as
0: the <laughs> king, I'm assuming he doesn't uh, fly solo.
1: i seen Biden come to visit Israel. It's like a lot of limousines and all of that. Yeah. And then... Agrippus gets off his donkey and he picks up the basket and he puts it on his shoulder and he walks to the temple court himself. And that's humbling. But then what's really humbling is he says, this is what I've got. This is what I'm bringing you, God. And then he takes it off his shoulders as if to say, like, I've carried it this far, but really you've done the main carrying. And he recites the thing as if to say, it's too heavy for me to carry by myself. He tells the story. And
0: he tells the same story that the poor farmer from uh, Beit Shemesh or wherever, who has three trees and five stalks of wheat or whatever he's got. Agrippus the king and that guy are going to tell the exact same story. The
1: exact same story, and they're going to carry it themselves, and they're going to put it down themselves. I tried to imagine, what is a report card? You know, when your kid does five points of math or takes BC calculus, and you come down, and you are celebrating the report card. So, to me, Agrippus is saying, and Mish Kasoy is saying, and people who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago are saying— I've done the labor. I've carried the basket, but it's not really mine. I'm not the strong one that's doing the heavy lifting. And that is such a powerful identity narrative. It's a communal narrative, and it's a narrative of grace. Of everything that I have is a gift from God. It's a huge celebration, like it's unending celebration, but it's not about me. It's about something that's much more me.
0: The humility makes that possible, right? Just to connect the two things you pointed to. If I'm not great and the moment is great, then the greatness belongs to God. Right. In other words, by making myself small, I have made space to point out God's greatness. If it's about me, then it's not about God. And yet at the same time, by being the one or the people who get to make God great, there's like a tremendous privilege in that. That's like very exciting. I think others looking at that would say there's something demeaning. What you're gonna make yourself small, you're important too. And I think it misses the point. Within humility and gratitude, you get this tremendous, I think, this feeling of like accomplishment and worth.
1: Vekut, I'm part of something that's so much bigger than me. I am part of this celebration. And the next thing that's celebrated and highlighted also in the Mishnah is that it's actually not just about the grapes. You're bringing the grapes, you're bringing the dates, but you're really celebrating the land and you're celebrating beyond the land, Jerusalem. And that comes up in the first chapter of the Mishnah because you only can bring the Bikurim if you own the land that's attached to the trees and you can only bring the bikurim if it's from the seven species. So it's about... Not just this season's fruit, the stuff you got right now, which is, you know, a minute on the lips, a lifetime on the hips, but it's next season. The land that you have is going to last you through next year and the next year and the next year. And in addition to that, it's the seven species, the seven species that the land of Israel is praised that represent the greatness of the land of Israel. And you bring them to Jerusalem, which is the place where you have a connection to God. And so our connection to the land of Israel is about the connection that we have to God, to be part of this right divine story, as you said, but we are connecting ourselves to that narrative. Like more or less what you get is this idea that my personal accomplishment is a national cause for celebration because it's part of a thousands year effort and a thousands year promise. And it's not a celebration just of food, it's a celebration of roots in the land, and it's an opportunity to connect with God in the temple.
0: It's striking because normally we think about owning things, usually by owning things, being rooted in things, we have a sense of our own power. And what you're suggesting is that somehow by being rooted in the land and connected to the land, we're actually meant to take the conclusion of God's power and a connection to God. It's like a counter story to the story that most people want to tell about themselves or their families or their own accomplishments. Because built into that, I think there's a certain story of insecurity there. Like, if I'm not powerful and everything I have is because of God, what's going to happen if I don't earn God's favor? What's going to happen if God is not happy with how we're doing? This story is very risky. I'm wondering if you feel that in here also. I feel safer if I have the power, and I'm wondering if you get that as part of this as well.
1: I wanted to say one more thing before I answer that question, if I can. I wanted to connect this idea of the food that we have this minute the connection to the land, which is a sustainable connection, which is a connection to God, to Birkat Hamazon a few weeks back, that we've got this idea of the first blessing of the Birkat Hamazon is Hazanatakol. It's not even about humans. God is taking care of the birds and the bees and the ants that are eating my sandwich. And the second blessing is about the good land that God has given us. We're not just blessing on the fact that we have a minute on the lips, but that we also have the ability to sustain ourselves in the long term. And then even that, the third blessing, which is the last of the Torah-mandated blessings, is the demand that bring us to a place of connection with God, that it's about Yerushalayim. It's about a connection between the Jewish people and God, God's self. And to me, that's really inspiring, being part of that bigger narrative. And Rav Soloveitchik says, it's not even about thanks, it's about acknowledging. That's what Rav Soloveitchik says about Berkan It's not so much thanks, it's about acknowledging that it's all a nitina. It's just a privilege, it's a gift, it's grace. It's not something that kochi I mean, that's that's really what Deuteronomy is all about. about, about. It's not about So
0: let's power. come back to my question then. How do I avoid this? terrible sense of insecurity. If I don't have power and God has power, I'm watching her body language. Misha's very excited and inspired by that. (laughs) I'm scared that God is not going to give us what we need, God's not gonna continue to ensure our place in this land. Is that just the necessary flip side?
1: I think that's what we're supposed to be. And I've been thinking about this so much because I've been thinking about what does it mean on Pesach when we do this same story. Of course, I'm so inspired as a Jew who chose to uproot herself from America and to live in this land and do my gardening here and to plant seven species in my garden and to really feel that connection. And then on Pesach, we say the story, we cut off the last sentence, as if the happy ending's gone. But what you have when you cut off the last ending is the greatness of God. And what you're missing is the vulnerability. And you need that vulnerability when you live on the land, because there's so much danger of kochiva utzamiyadi, that my strength and my power are the ones that accomplish this country. And we see I don't want to be political, but we see how dangerous that sense of security can be. That when we think we're Balabite, that we're the owners of the land, and that we're the ones that are in charge of this country, that we can get arrogant. And that arrogance is exactly what God is trying to protect us from. Because God gave us this as grace, and it's not ours. It needs so to be taken care of ultimately, our
0: sense of being given a gift and being blessed and being humble If I understand what you're saying, it's one of the key recipes to us leading the moral and good life, that the arrogance and the lack of vulnerability and a sense of too much power actually yields pretty negative, dangerous consequences on the moral, ethical, and societal level. That's what the book
1: of Deuteronomy says.
0: So now I'm going to ask you a really hard question. What about the year when the crop is really terrible and all your beautiful garden has managed to produce Maybe a fig, half shriveled, whatever. You, I'm sure as a gardener, you've had better yields and worse yields. Okay. What do you imagine that farmer putting that little symbolic nothing into that basket and going up to the temple and telling the story? What do you imagine that struggle is like?
1: I think it's about doing a lot of cheshbon nefesh, a lot of reflection and a lot of remembering about our vulnerability. Being aware of our vulnerability is actually essential. And we know from the modern state of Israel, you know, 1967 was a time where we were so filled with our own power and it came and kicked us right back because that arrogance is so dangerous and we just have to be so careful. So a little bit of a bad season. This year, my grapes didn't
0: work. So let's come back to the other question I wanted to ask you as someone who really appreciates the individual? Are you worried or disappointed that in this story that we tell, there really is no I? And I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about that.
1: I certainly, it wasn't lost on me that the last time I was here, I recorded masse and we were talking about making space for every individual. And this is like a total collectivism. It's on record,
0: <laughs> folks. You can't even deny it <laughs> at this point. I think that one's even gone out. So uh... The thing
1: that's so good about me is that I'm a collectivist. I'm a Talmudist. And Talmudists don't believe in consistency. There's that. It can be inspiring. And that can be inspiring. I think that our lives are so much richer when we're part of the collective narrative and that doesn't mean that there's not also room for my three trees and my role in this collective, which is essential.
0: I was even going to suggest that you're talking about this parsha from your perspective and where you take it, how inspires you. That's your piece of the story. We could all say those same four sentences or five sentences, but we could apply them and think about them in very unique ways. And I'm just wondering if you connect on that level that your midrash is the way your story finds its way into this collective story. No
1: question about it. I'm totally moved by the collective story. And I think the challenge is to work with people, including my own children, who are less moved by the collective story than I am.
0: Really? I'm surprised. Your children grew up here. This has been their-
1: And they're moved by it.
0: But you're saying you're the one who's like most excited.
1: I'm fabrent on being part of this but I am passionate about Pardes and making space for everyone to walk their own way.
0: So you're passionate about everything is what you're saying. It's really unique. You're really able to embrace these, I wouldn't say radically different, only really opposing ways of being and thinking about the world, but you make them fit for yourself all at the same time. That's really quite a gift. It's all from God. It's all from God. See, she's humble even into this very moment. Let me ask you another follow-up question before you run away back to your more important work. We don't have a temple and we don't really have Bikurim anymore. Are there ways or tools you think that we can sort of absorb this? Even in an age of where technology seems to teach us, I can have everything I want when I want it right away and everything's at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what are sort of the tools even that you use to remind yourself of this humility, the sense of being blessed, the sense of being part of a communal national blessing?
1: Wow. Life is humbling, isn't it? It can be. (laughs) Gardening is humbling. And with the patience that comes with gardening and the anticipation, which is part of this narrative of identifying your bikurim before you pick them and waiting for them to grow. And then, you know, maybe they'll come out well and maybe they won't come out well, which is something with my grapevine that's always up to the last minute. You know, they can wither. And praying, doing a lot of praying these days for our collective vision. And there's humility there, not just the humility of it's all from God, but also the humility of, I feel passionate about my truth, but to also be able to hold back on that truth and make room for other people's truths and entertain the possibility of not being 100% right and coming to compromise for the sake of the collective.
0: Well, that's the challenge here when we focus on the collective, because I agree with you. On the one hand, it's very beautiful. I'm not isolated. I'm not alone. I'm not in this world all alone. I am part of something greater than myself. And we have this national project that we're all about. But of course, at the same time, that approach comes with terrible risk because suddenly what I want to be a part of and to achieve is dependent upon you and that person and that person, and that person, all trying to lift the basket with me. And we're confronted all the time in the ways that we don't agree on the basket or the fruit or where to bring the basket or who's the coin to accept the basket or what story we tell. And so... I feel like it's always my job to bring you down. I'm not trying to bring you down, but <laughs> that this challenge of the collective that we're living can also, in a way can make me feel isolated in the sense that I can't have it the way-
1: You're powerless because you see the truth. We see the truth and everybody, and and it's not know, all but going really my way. I really do.
0: That's the difference. But <laughs> in other words, I feel like in all of this passion, there really is a potential to set us up for a real sense of, I don't want to say hopelessness, but I'm going to say hopelessness.
1: Absolutely not. Humility, God is going to stick with us and we're going to keep plugging away and we are going to keep, not every grapevine is going to come to a bumper crop, but some do come to a bumper crop. And that's the work that we have, Tzvi. It's a tough world, but we are at historic opportunity. I mean, not only is it collectivist, it's also incredibly Zionist this week compared to Matot Bahseh, <laughs> but I'm so inspired by living in this historical moment, 75 years to Midnight Yisrael and the chance to walk that walk and to build that dream and to make it happen in an enduring way.
0: Wow, I really can't think of a better way to end than that one. It comes with a tremendous challenge, right? Our optimism, our gratitude, our humility, our sense of connection, they really do all require what you've laid out for us, an ability to not live only in our own little narrow, private, confined space of worries and desires and hopes, but to really, as you said, I'm gonna tell our story and not always be focused on my personal story. And I need that reminder, I guess, all the time my own way, right? Someone told me that 70% of our thoughts are about ourselves. Oh my gosh. Which, and I'm selfing. surprised it wasn't higher. I have a
1: friend who calls it selfing. selfing. Yeah,
0: I'm surprised it's not higher. And I think you're right. Dvarim is trying to pull us away from that. It knows we're going to fall into that as soon as we have our own nachalah, our own little portion. And it's challenging us all the time to get beyond that. And from what you're telling us, we are now engaging that challenge again with the opportunity to engage that challenge. Specifically at this
1: time of year, as the high holidays are coming up, and in this tough world, which keeps knocking us down and challenging us.
0: But to to quote you, God is with us and God's going to help us out.
1: That's right. And we have the schut, the opportunity to keep trying. It's a real privilege.
0: Wow. That is Together, you and me. Okay, we're going to do it. If not now, then by next week, we'll have it all figured (laughs) out. Wow, Mish, thank you so much. That was really inspiring. A little scary, but definitely inspiring.
1: Thanks, sweet. Thanks for sharing it with me.
0: Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Shabbat shalom. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha Podcast. Shabbat Shalom.